0: Today on Hearing is Believing. There is no way to disjoin Christian confession from public expression, at least not to call it Christianity. Connecting contemporary culture to the timeless truths of God's Word. This is Hearing is Believing. The cultural tides of our society are shifting rapidly. As the foundations upon which our society were built, they continued to crumble due to, right now, the force is secularism. And there's a heavy-handed desire from some to disjoin Christian confession from public expression. There's a heavy-handed desire from some to disjoin Christian confession from public expression. And so, for example, just consider this in your minds for just a moment. What happens when public figures align themselves with Christianity, but they then refuse to support policies that are coherent with Christian orthodoxy or Christian teaching? What happens? In 2008, the then-presidential candidate Joe Biden was refused communion in Scranton, Pennsylvania because of his views of abortion. So ask yourself the question, was the bishop justified in refusing to give Biden communion? Further, in 2016, when Donald Trump became the uh, Republican Party nominee for president, think back to 2016, many Christians, particularly evangelicals, they faced a crisis of conscience when voting for a man with such a colored past. And so why did the Catholic bishop refuse to serve communion to Joe Biden? Why did evangelicals in 2016 face a crisis when consider voting for Donald Trump? And so to answer such questions, again, we consider this Christian confession and public expression. And so to answer those questions, we're going to delve into our study of 1 Timothy tonight. And after considering, remember where we were last week, we were considering true doctrine. And so the title of our series is Safe to Shore, and we are looking through First Timothy very quickly to look at 12 principles to keep our faith off the rocks. And so basically, we don't want to end up like Hymenaeus and Alexander. We don't want, as Christians, to make shipwreck of our faith. And so last week, principle number one, the foundation, is true doctrine. If we want to keep our, keep our uh, ship safe to shore, I have to be careful saying that one. If we want to keep, keep our ship safe to shore, then we have to make sure that we are on the right path, and it begins with true doctrine. After true doctrine then comes, we flip the coin of true doctrine, and we find its other side is right practice. And here's the point that I want to convey to you tonight, hopefully as clearly as I can. There is no way to disjoin Christian confession from public expression, at least not to call it Christianity. And as Richard Weaver so elegantly put it in his classic, ideas have consequences. And so what we believe from the pew will be lived out in the public square. And Paul's warning here to Timothy is clear. Listen, we must guard truth to ensure that we are correctly influencing culture from our position as those who have received revelation, not the other way around, not the square influencing us, but us influencing the square. You say, well, what's the difference? One of those influences starts from above, while the other starts from beneath. And a theology from above will result in praise. And a theology that starts from below will only result in idolatry. And what's the difference between praise and idolatry? The difference between the two is literally heaven. And hell. And the French, if we don't understand this, then the French, they seem to understand the implications religious belief has on the public square. And just in this month, and I'm not a regular subscriber to this, I was pointed to this by the seminary president that I just graduated from, Al Moeller. One of the most influential publications in France is Le Monde Diplomatique. Aren't you glad that I'm introducing you to Le Monde Diplomatique tonight? I don't even know if I'm saying the French right. If a Frenchman were here, you're not, he'd say, obviously, I'm not saying it right. So maybe you'd like to say the world, the diplomacy of the world, because that's what Le Monde Diplomatique means. But anyway, they ran a recent headline. Listen to this headline, The Rise of Evangelical Christianity with the subhead The fast-growing evangelical movement is mainly ultra-conservative, keen on prosperity. It is transnational, pragmatic, shrewd politically, and increasingly seeks ways to advance its right-wing agenda. The rise of evangelical Christianity... The rise of evangelical Christianity is of great concern for this French newspaper because they understand that as evangelical Christianity rises, the culture is affected. And here they're making a connection between evangelical Christianity and diplomacy. Evangelical Christianity and diplomacy. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, let's put it in perspective. Remember that the French uh, the, the French culture is overwhelmingly secular. Matter of fact, French culture, they don't even really recognize Protestantism. However, due to the rise of evangelicalism across the world, as well as other factors like the decline of the mainline denominations, as well as the decline of Catholicism, the most influential publication, the most influential newspaper for the elite in France is sounding the alarm that the evangelicals are coming. And the reason that this is alarming remember this secularism views progress in a direction that is away from the traditional values of Christianity. So, for example, the traditional. Uh, you know, Definitions that Christianity holds to, like the definition of marriage, the definition of sexuality, gender, abortion, dignity, human flourishing. Secularists view progress as in the opposite direction of what Christianity holds dear. And listen to this. The article quotes a Brazilian theologian, and thankfully this was in English. The article quotes a Brazilian theologian who says this. Listen to this. The evangelicals are medieval in the worst sense. Politically, they change everything. We're no longer in a discussion between conservatives and progressives in a democratic context. When the government's slogan is God is above all things, everything is called into question. So he says that he says that we evangelicals are medieval in the worst sense. Now, some of you love history, some of you could care less about history, so just bear with me for just a minute. Remember that the medieval times were also known as the Dark Ages. Why were they called the Dark Ages? Well, during the Dark Ages, the Dark Ages, marriage was defined as between one man and one woman, abortion. And infanticide were understood as a, an egregious evil, in other words, truth during the dark ages was not subjective. Truth during the dark ages was objective and so why is that a problem for a French newspaper named Le Mon? Why is it a problem? For a French newspaper named The World. That's quite a title, isn't it? Of course, Le Monde, the Fr- they would name it uh, The World. Remember the th- that, they- there again, we go back to history. Remember, the French had a revolution. And the French Revolution was secular. The French helped give us the philosophical foundations for postmodernism, which denies objective truth. The French also helped to give us something called deconstructionism. You say, well, what's the big deal with deconstructionism? I've never heard that phrase in my life. we tear tearing down buildings or something. What does that mean? Deconstructionism plays itself out in the way that we read the Bible. And according to deconstructionism, meaning is derived from a text based upon what you think about the text not necessarily what the author of the text intended to say. Christians, by contrast, we believe truth is real, and knowledge of the truth is also real. Further, we confess openly and boldly that there is no way that we can remain silent about our faith, and on that point, Christians and Le Mans agree. Even if the newspaper calls our belief backwards and medieval, the attempt of the secularists will be to silence us. And if they can't silence us from speaking, then the attempt will be to allow us to only speak in a place like this, in a church, in our holy huddles, not in the public square and surely not in the voters' booth. However, we cannot be silent. We as Christians must bear witness to what we have seen and heard. Did you know today, today, a Christian broadcaster on the radio, a Christian teacher, if he says the word homosexual, The word suicide or the word abortion, he will be cut off from the airways. And in Canada, it's even worse. So the secularists will try to keep us silent, to keep the conversation in-house. But We must remember that we as believers, we cannot be silent. Christian expression, Christian confession will always mean public expression. And so we're considering our or continu- continuing, not considering. We're continuing our series, safe to shore, and we're on principle number two. And so we turn to our text tonight, where we're going to see Paul. He's going to connect true doctrine and good practice. True doctrine and good practice, or we could say what the Greek says, healthy practice. But we'll just call it good practice for the sake of clarity. And in an age where faithful Christian confession matters most, and understand that, faithful Christian confession, we are reminded that Christian confession is not just a matter of the head. It's a matter of the heart, the hands, the feet, the eyes, the ears, the toes, and I guess even your nose. The love of God concerns sound doctrine and good practice, sound doctrine and good practice. Hear the word of the Lord from First Timothy, chapter one. We'll start reading at verse seven, and then we'll go through 11. Desiring to be let's start at verse six. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound or healthy doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray this evening. Thank you for this time this time of proclamation Lord we cannot be silent and I pray the truth claims of Christianity would mend our hearts to sing your praise forever and do it even tonight I pray begin that process even tonight or further it along whatever the case may be be glorified in these moments in Jesus name Amen So there are three truths that I want us to learn this evening about Christian confession and public expression. Christian confession and public expression. And all three of these points are going to concern themselves with the law of God. The law of God. So understand already in your mind the connecting point between Christian confession and public expression. At the center of those things is the law of God. And the law of God is the law no matter what the law of the land may be and as christians we need to stand emphatically there immovable just as our lord's law is immovable so we should stand with what is not subject to ruin or decay so number one the law is good the law is good Now don't take that for granted because I remember the first question that I ever asked Charles Stanley when I came up to him one evening. I was in college leading a Bible study and I said after a service one evening, I said, Dr. Stanley, there's this new theology that's abounding that says that you can call yourself a Christian and live however you want. And in his gentle way, He just reminded me, you know, there were 400 other people behind waiting, and instead of looking at me and saying, why are you wasting my time with this simple question, he looked at me and he said, that's not a new theology. That's been around a long time. And there are some, there is a pocket of some Christian thinking that does suggest that. That suggests that now that we're under grace, the law doesn't apply. So they say things like grace gives liberty while the law in slaves we are free in Christ listen but as peter reminds us in 1 peter 2:16 we are not to use our freedom as a covering for evil in other words christian confession is not anti law the law listen reveals the gospel to us And so those people who think that the law no longer applies to Christians, they're called antinomians or antinomianism. Anti means against. Nomos is that Greek word that means law. And so the antinomians or antinomianism says that, hey... Grace gives liberty while the law enslaves. But Peter says that we're not to use our freedom as a covering for evil. Christian confession is not anti-law. Look at it. It's right here in verse 8. What does it say? The law is what? Good. Good. Now, there's qualifiers behind that, but we won't look at the qualifiers just yet. We'll just simply rest in the fact that the text says that the law is coloss. The law is good. And so the law here refers specifically to the Torah. So let's go back to Hebrew school. We said Shalom, Shalom Sunday. Let's go back to Hebrew school tonight. The Hebrew Bible is divided into three sections. The law, the prophets, and the writings. The law is the first five books. The first five books are also called the Pentateuch. They're also called the Torah. And so by referring to the law here, Paul specifically has in his mind the Torah, And further than that, to narrow the scope even further, as we're going to see later in the text, he has in his mind the expression of the Torah, the Decalogue. Now, what's the Decalogue? The Ten Commandments. I have to remember that. How many sides does a Decagon have? Ten. That's how I remember Ten Commandments. And so the law shows us God's holy standard. And the law demands that we live a life with His holiness always in view. So because the law is there and Jesus says that I didn't abolish it, I fulfilled it, what does that mean? It means that it's always there. And we're always to live our life with its holiness or His holiness in our view. And look at this. I want to bring this point home as clearly as I can. The false teachers in verse 7 and 6 and 5 that are mentioned, the false teachers are false teachers, listen, not because they have the wrong text. They're false teachers because they misuse the right text. Do you understand that? It's not that they have the wrong text. They just misuse the right ones. And so they take the Old Testament and they misuse it in such a way and then Paul just calls an ace an ace and a spade a spade. It says that they reveal their ignorance. The law was being used by these false teachers as a standard for Christian living. And that's incompatible, or that view that they were using it is incompatible with sound doctrine. And so their angle of approach... How they're coming at the law is entirely wrong. Or, better yet, just let the Bible speak. Their angle of approach is ignorance. Ignorance. And ignorance is a a foul thing, especially when we're talking about eternal matters. Especially when we're talking about uh, impacting souls forever. You want to avoid that word being ascribed to you and your methods. as ignorance. By the way, I'll never forget... Uh, brother Jimmy one time going to my homiletics class I uh, um I man I missed it I flat missed it matter of factly my professor missed that I missed it and it took one of my colleagues to raise his hand and say hey buddy you blew it and then I tried to come back and I tried to say I tried to make an excuse for myself and I made it worse I put my foot in my mouth because I said something to the effect of, well, I want, because he gave us one of those Old Testament passages to preach from, and those are difficult anyway, and I said, well, I wanted to skip over this so that I could get to that, and he stopped me, and he said, so you mean to tell me that you decided to skip over the gospel so that you could get to some other detail in the text, and you left me without anything to say, but the point of telling that story is simply to say that I would rather get it wrong in a setting like that with a bunch of seminarians when I'm in training than to get it wrong here tonight or in any other setting. You don't want ignorance to be ascribed to your teaching, to your life, to your ministry. Ignorance is not what you desire, but that's exactly what Paul says. Their angle of approach is entirely wrong or it's ignorant. And so then the good use of the law, and there is a good way to use the law. Listen, the good use of the law is to use it the way that God intends. You say, well, how does God intend us to use the law? Well, thankfully, I believe that there's a couple of other books that were written prior by Paul, prior to his writing Timothy, that he is assuming that Timothy understands. You say, are you just assuming? Are you reading into the text? No, I'm looking at verse 8 where it says, now we know. In other words, I believe by that one little phrase, now we know, Paul is calling to Timothy's remembrance What he has been taught in the past. And you say, do we have a record of what Timothy has been taught in the past? The closest we can have is from the mouth of the man who taught him. So for example, what is the good use of the law? What's the intention of the law? Well, consider Romans and Galatians. Romans 5 and Galatians 3.19. Romans says, the law came in to increase the trespass. So why did the law come? to increase the trespass but then listen to this beautiful phrase but where sin increased grace abounded all the more you see the qualifier the law in the New Testament never stands by itself it's always qualified because the law has a terminus the law has an end and the end of the law is Christ and if we are in Christ we are in the fulfillment of the law So consider Galatians. Galatians, and I love this. Why then the law? Oh, I was so glad as an early Bible student when I found that passage. Because we're always wondering, what's the the connection between the New Testament and the Old Testament? Well, we just read Galatians. Why then the law? The law was added because of the transgressions. Now listen to the spin. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. In other words, the law needs proper application. And the law cannot have a right application outside sound doctrine. You say, Well, what is sound doctrine? The gospel. You say, What is the gospel? It's Jesus, sent, crucified, resurrected, ascended, and coming again. That's the gospel. And who's at the center of the gospel? Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. And so these false teachers were false because they were, a guilt, they were guilty of applying the law without the gospel. They were guilty of applying the law without the gospel. They missed the until or the but statements that Paul laced in his ministry, founded his ministry upon. And so the law is good only when applied with the gospel. Otherwise, the law can only do something. And what the law can only do is reveal sin and shortcoming. So, in other words, the law frustrates if left to itself. But the gospel liberates. Number two, the law develops personal qualities. The law develops personal qualities. So it's good, and it develops personal qualities. So what is the law? The law is God's God's good gift to reveal humanity, God's righteous standard for living. And so the law provides humanity with a glimpse of the depths of our fall. And the links that we are from being anything that God delights in. And through revealing the righteous right standard of God, the law convicts of righteousness and shows us that we need a Savior. Paul would say in Galatians again, it's our tutor, schoolmaster, to lead us to Christ. And so then Paul says, these are the ones the law is for. But notice this, and this is why we talk about personal qualities. The list in verses 9 through 10, as we're going to look at them in just a moment, that list, listen, it's not a list of vices, not in the way that other passages are um, a list of vices, as I'm thinking Romans 1 in particular, but this list is more personal, describing people known for those vices. It's not, it's not, look, look here. It's not, it's not uh, lawlessness, but for the lawless. It's not for disobedience, but for the disobedient. Do you see that? So it's not just simply a list of vices, so much it is personally describing people known for those vices. And the point of this list is to demonstrate in short form what is out of step with sound doctrine or true Christian confession. So we're going to go through each of these, but keep in mind as we go through this list that only the gospel can produce the positive side of these individuals and their vices. Only the gospel can produce the positive side The law can only point out a sinner's sin, but only the blood of Jesus can wash sin away and make one whole again. So let's consider these, and we'll be very quick. Lawless and disobedient, who are they? They're people living as if there's no law. These people are authorities all unto themselves, and to the lawless, truth is relative." Because they and their opinions are the sum total of truth, to which we should say, "How shallow." Then we have ungodly and sinners. And these are the ones who are unsaved. These are the ones who are separated from God. And then we have the unholy and profane. These are the irreverent. These are the ones who have no regard for the sacred and they're devoid of holiness and therefore are incapable of pleasing God. And then look at this next one here, those who strike father and mother, murderers. These are the violators of the 5th and 6th commandments. There again we're seeing what Paul has in mind. He has in mind the Decalogue when he's described the 10 commandments, when he describes the law. And then look, sexually immoral. Men who practice homosexuality. And let me just make a hermeneutical uh, point real quickly. And that has hermeneutics relates with Bible interpretation. And let me simply say the word homosexual means homosexual. It means what it means here in the text. Our context is not removed from what it means from this text. And so in other words, these are the violators of the seventh commandment. They're out of step with Christian confession. Then we have enslavers, liars, and perjurers, those engaged in the slave trade. Liars and perjurers, these are the violators of the eighth and the ninth commandment. And so look at that list again. Within that list, we see Paul focusing on commandments five through ten. Why does he not focus on commandments one through four? Well, the commandments are broken down into the first four which have to do with our vertical uh, relationship with God and the next six which have to do with our horizontal. The purpose of the commandments are if you get things right vertically, the horizontal will take care of itself. If you get things right between you and God, then you and your neighbor will live in harmony. And he doesn't concern himself with the first four because he wants to make the point that these descriptors can only be applied to those who are in violation of the first four. If you don't have the first four, this is Paul's point to these who are uh, using the law wrongly. If you don't have the first four, then there's no way that the rest of the six can fall into place. And the only way to make the first four true is for the gospel to be applied. The blood of Jesus, a relationship to God through Jesus... So, Paul's point in missing the first four is to make the point to the teachers to say, hey, you think that you can get the first six, the, the bottom six, right without the first four? Paul says, no way. It can't happen. And Paul begins to discuss the commandments. Look at where he begins. And I'm going to say this very quickly with those who strike father and mother. Why does he begin there? Why does, when the Ten Commandments make the shift to the vertical, to the horizontal, why is the first thing that's mentioned honoring mother and father? I believe that honoring parents is the first moral choice that an individual can make. And why is that important for Christian confession? Listen, everything cascades into chaos once the family is set aside. Remember, Only the gospel is the the remedy for the malady of sin. Only the gospel is the remedy for sin. One who is lawless and disobedient becomes lawful. And disobedient becomes becomes faithful because of the finished worth of Jesus. One One becomes holy all because of Jesus. Faith in Jesus will keep you from dishonoring father and mother, from becoming a murderer. Faith in Jesus will keep you sexually pure, morally right. If you were once any of those things that's listed there, if the law of God could look upon you and say, lawless, disobedient, ungodly sinner, disrespectful, murderer, sexually immoral, homosexual, slave trader, liar, if the law could look and say, those things are true, Listen, faith in Jesus can wipe all of that out. This is sound doctrine. And sound doctrine is always lived out. There was a man born blind who had a testimony about Jesus. When the law keepers were accusing Jesus of blasphemy, He said, I don't know about all of those things. But this one thing I know. I once was blind. And now I see. Jesus found that man that the law had cast out. He healed him of his blindness. And he invited him to walk with him. You say, what's the point in telling that? Because what we believe... Matters in everyday life. There are so many people fumbling about, blind, deceived, and darkened. What we believe matters. It matters most in our lives and it can matter in theirs too. It can matter in your life. What we confess about Jesus matters not just here, but everywhere. Because there's not one square inch, to quote another uh, Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper, there's not one square inch from which the Lord of heaven and earth does not declare, mine, mine, mine. And he does that with your thoughts, with your finances. Go down the list with the way you walk, with how you talk. Everything God says is mine. Number three. And this is just a summation point of every other point that we've already made. The law leads to the gospel. Listen, sound doctrine is the right application of the law. And the right application of the law is the realization that we are incapable of living to its righteous standard. Apart from grace, I would be all of those things mentioned in verses 9 through 10. You would too. Apart from grace, that list describes me and you. But because of Jesus and my faith in him, I am none of those things. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was all of those things, but now I am saved by grace. An authentic faith, listen, is a faith that is lived out. You can't be a Christian with any of the lists that's above. You can't be, you can't not, and listen, listen to the other side. Not only can, you can't be a Christian with what is listed above, listen, you can't not be those things above without sound doctrine. Because Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. And His fulfilling the law means that what He fulfills, He applies to us. And you say, how does He apply that to us? Faith in Him. Faith in His finished work. Faith in Jesus. Sound doctrine is too powerful For us to keep silent about. Because the glorious gospel that God has entrusted to us, listen, is not just the way to life, but it is a way of life. So we live consistent with our calling to live a life fully pleasing to God. And if we're out of step with God, because we're anything in those verses 10 through 11, or 9 and 10, it means that we are out of step with Christian confession and true doctrine. In other words, we are are not faithfully confessing Christ. And so just remember this tonight. Remember, ideas have consequences. And Christians live lives of faith fully pleasing to God. That's what we do. Now that doesn't mean we'll always be perfect, but that means we always have as our ambition not to cover our sins, but to live a life pleasing to God. And so my question to you is do you know sound doctrine? And you say yes to which I'll simply say, show me. Don't tell me. Show me. Sound doctrine will always be lived out. Christian confession always means public expression. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that you give us of a crucified, Savior for the sins, my sins, and the sins of the world. A risen Savior to offer life to all of those who by faith trust. And a coming again Lord who will finally end all the deceptiveness, all the turmoil, all the strife, all the sin in our world. Hasten the day. Take us with you. Wherever you may go, that's where we want to be. And it's my prayer, Lord, that for all of those within the sound of my voice, they would be those who right now the Spirit is evaluating their life. Show us, Lord God, where we are not faithfully confessing you. And help us to come to you by faith and declare your lordship over that place in our life. Keep us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. You're listening to Hearing is Believing. For more information or to contact us, please visit hearingisbelieving.org.